This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good evening, everybody. Hello, welcome. Thank you all for coming to spend your Monday evening again with us in this, the second session of our course on Confronting Katrina, Race, Class, and Disaster in American Society. My name is Lawrence Bobo, and I am the director of the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity here at Stanford and of the program in African and African American Studies. We are delighted, after a very successful first session, to be able to bring you another informative and provocative evening on the events that unfolded, or at least inspired by the events that unfolded in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Again, we see our primary mission as largely that of keeping all of us focused on the larger issues and deeper societal problems signaled by the human suffering you've seen behind you on many of the scenes going by this evening that occurred in New Orleans and in other parts of the Gulf Coast states. These deeper issues have to do with persistent problems of poverty, of segregation, and of disregard for the elderly and the disadvantaged in our society. It also, of course, has to do with the functioning of our society and institutions as elements of a sort of shared cultural fabric. And it is that cultural fabric, as represented by and communicated via major media outlets and prominent figures in our mass-mediated society, that will be the focus of our session tonight, entitled Media, Culture, and the Politics of Representation, Viewing a Racialized Disaster. Here, we are going to talk about, for example, the sort of routine scripts and ways of framing issues that our American news media tend to employ, where I think it's fair for us to ask the question, why is one person wading ch through chest deep water a looter, whereas someone else is merely looking for food and shelter? And, for example, was it wrong for a hip-hop artist like Kanye West to take his opportunity on national television to criticize President Bush and the federal government for a slow response to Hurricane Karina, Katrina and read it as a sign of indifference to the fate of black people? And how should we all now be thinking about news reports and news outlets and how they select and choose what to feature? and what pop prominent figures in our culture are saying about persistent divides of class, race, and ethnicity in our society. These are, of course, tough, tough questions. And we are not going to have the final resolution this evening, despite bringing a distinguished and expert panel to bear on these subjects. Uh, we will also want to hear from you. As we did during our last session, we will be passing around question cards uh, after each speaker, we'll try to collect these cards uh, and bring them forward so that we're able to put them before the panel uh, and stimulate a pretty lively discussion in response to the concerns that many of you uh, in the audience have. I want to note, of course, that the sort of issues we raise here, the commitment embodied in CCSRE, is something that's continuously available to those of you in the Stanford community through our regularly offered courses, our panels, our talks, and events around campus. And there's lots of information outside on the tables as you come in describing what those courses are and how to get access to them. So if you're interested in understanding the problem of poverty in the U.S. and around the world, segregation in the U.S. and around the world, uh, cultures of stereotyping and misrepresentation, think of CCSRE as an intellectual home for you and look at the materials outside. 
I should also note and to some degree be thankful that we are in this much more spacious room. Those of you who were there last time and virtually everyone stayed till the end know that that was a tight, warm space for the nearly 350 of us collected there and this is a far more comfortable location. We will again return to this room on November 7th for our third session and our fourth and final session on November 28th will take place in Kresge Hall uh, in the law school. And those are all firm commitments and we will be publicizing widely these changes in venues so that uh, you all have in mind where those are taking place. Uh, so please bear that in mind and, and join us again. So I now want to begin to turn the session over to my colleague uh, who will moderate this evening, Professor Hazel Marcus. Uh, and she will have the job of introducing our main speakers. Professor Marcus is the, the David Brack Professor in the Behavioral Sciences. Her research focuses on the sociocultural constitution of agency. She explores how our various significant social contexts, from the large regions of the world, to regions of the country, to divisions defined by social class, race, ethnicity, religion, gender, and the like, shape how each of us think, feel, and act in the world. She is the author of numerous, numerous articles and books and a scholar of rare distinction. Her most recent uh, publication, including Culture and Emotion, and the co-authored book, Engaging Cultural Differences, The Multicultural Challenge in Liberal Democracies. Hazel Marcus also serves as the co-director of our Research Institute of Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. And it is my pleasure to introduce her to you all this evening. Please uh, welcome Hazel Marcus. Thank you, Larry. Those of you who are just coming in, please come down and make yourself at home. There's, there's seats down front. Tonight, we want to continue our effort, as Larry said, to be a site of serious multidisciplinary thinking and meaning making about the catastrophic event that was Katrina. Last session, through the remarks of Professor Snip, Bobo, Camarillo, and Fraga, we saw that the tragedy of Katrina had many current structural and political sources, as well as deep historical roots. Tonight, we're bringing together another set of distinguished scholars, scholars from the disciplines of linguistics, communications, and social and organizational psychology, to think about how we viewed Katrina and how it was represented to us, by whom, and why and how representation matters. Tonight's speakers, and I'll introduce them more formally as they speak, but they are Professor Shanto Iyengar, and next to him is Brian Lowry, and finally, Marcelina Morgan. As we confront Katrina tonight, it's important to note that most of us did not experience the fear of impending 150 mile an hour winds, the terror of climbing and hacking one's way to a roof to avoid or escape rising water, or the panic of not being able to get a hold of family members. Now, I do know that a few of you here tonight were indeed in the middle of these events, but most of us saw these events. That is, we viewed Katrina and its aftermath in the comfort of our rooms or our homes or while burning calories on the elliptical. As we ate bagels or ramen, we read how the New York Times or USA Today represented these events or we heard about them on NPR, or looked at how they were constructed and arranged by CNN.com or Google News. The question for today's session is really a small one. <laughs> this. 
representation and reality. And it is the nature, the question of the nature of the correspondence between what happened in the Gulf Coast and what we saw happen or what we heard or read. The issues to be addressed are included in the title of tonight's session, culture, media, and politics. I wanna make three points quickly. First, our experience of reality always involves representation. Katrina was represented reality. Two, representation does not just reveal the world as it is. Representation takes place with the aid of one's attitudes, expectations, and models of the world. And these frameworks of meaning derive from our social and cultural experiences. And three, as members of a diverse democratic society, we should be concerned about who is doing the representing and how we might think about intervening in the process. Those who control the media are powerful because very simply, they control the construction of what is real. None of us experience the world directly or in any unmediated way. It's simply impossible to do this no matter how hard we try. Since no two of us have had exactly the same sets of experiences, no two pair of eyes sees exactly the same world. And although it seems we've only to open our eyes and that we will then automatically apprehend the world as it is, this is a fallacy. The powerful and immediate sense that we see things as they are is in psychology called the fallacy of naive realism. In fact, the world that we see is a construction, a compilation of many representations, a complex act of meaning making that occurs so effortlessly so quickly, so automatically, that it typically remains tacit, invisible, and usually unanalyzed. The outcome of this stealth construction process depends partly on what we perceive, what's out there to be seen, and very importantly, on our frameworks, our schemas, our narratives, our models, our metaphors, our attitudes, beliefs, and expectations. These meaning-making frameworks are not applied after we perceive the event. Very significantly, these frameworks are active ingredients in seeing the world and in fashioning our experience. Now, in psychology, we often illustrate this point with the following little story. You may have heard it before. Three baseball, baseball umpires are reflecting upon their professional practice of calling balls and strikes. The first ump confidently declares, I call them the way they are. The second ump joins in and says, I call them as I see them. The third ump closes the discussion with a statement, they ain't nothing until I call them. Think about it. The third ump has it close to right. Reality always depends on representation. We learn to see and we learn to see the world as our society sees it, as our family sees it, as our political party sees it, as our ethnic or racial or religious group sees it, as women see it, or as men see it, or as the Stanford community sees it. And then we teach other people to see in these same particular ways. Our representations of, a, of an event like Katrina, whether our own representations of that event or those of a journalist or reporter, derive from some combination of particular representational frameworks, and we need to attend to these. Many famous studies in psychology underscore this point. In one very well-known study, White students observed a videotape of one man slightly shoving another man during a brief argument. 
Sometimes the man doing the shoving was black, and sometimes he was white. How the students represented this scene depended on their ideas, their stereotypes of likely black and white behavior. When a white man was seen slightly shoving a black man, only 13% of observers rated the act as violent behavior. Instead, most perceivers represented the event as horsing around, playing around, or dramatizing. Interpretations, however, were very different when the scene depicted a black man slightly shoving a white man. In this case, 73% of the observers said the act observed was violent. This study reveals very simply that perceivers represented the same slight shove differently depending on the perceiver's expectations of black and white behavior. Participants, of course, had no awareness of this difference in their representations. Another famous study also revealed the way that cultural expectations affect perceiving, remembering, reporting experience. This was a study of rumor transmission. Psychologists showed this picture of people on a subway. You can see when it was done by the drawing. It's kind of a nice period piece here. But if you look carefully, you will see in the center a black and a white man. You will see that the white man is holding a straight razor. I don't have my, my laser, but if you look, the, the, the guy in blue is holding a straight razor. So participants in the study were told to look at the picture then to turn away from the picture and tell a second person about the picture, who was then to tell a third person about the picture, and so on. After six tellings, reliably, the razor in the white man's hand shifted to the black man's hand. What this reveals is that the way seeing, is the very way in which seeing and reporting drift toward the culturally dominant frameworks, black man as perpetrator. Now this brings us to the representation of Katrina and the powerful role of pervasive cultural frameworks in the representational process. In the aftermath of Katrina, some reports, in some reports, blacks who removed items from stores, as we've already talked about tonight, and we'll talk about it in every talk, I think. Uh, let me see, oh, wait a minute, I got this in the wrong order, so I'll go past where I'm going to get to. Sorry. And I have to hit it again to do it. This one. And, uh, and many of you have heard about this. Um, blacks from, who removed items from stores were described as looting. This is one caption here. And then there's another caption, one on the left, one on the right. White people were described as finding needed supplies. And if you look at them, they're almost identical in, in the... Um, images. This difference in representation was so blatant that it quickly became obvious to many observers. And this was a big issue back and forth on the internet. Now, recent studies here by a brilliant professor in psychology, Jennifer Eberhardt, reveal, have looked at this, this difference in how we represent, and she has done a study that I want to just show you quickly here, and I'll go back to it. She did a study in which she has noted, as many have noted, that African-American men in the media are rarely seen in positive ways as teachers, as fathers, as churchgoers. Instead, there are so many ne negative representations of African-Americans in mainstream contexts, in books, movies, television, television, magazines, and on the web, 
that in America, Jennifer Eberhardt argues, black equals crime and crime equals black. And to actually look at this idea, what she did is to show participants very quickly either a lot of pictures of black faces, this is one black face, or a lot of pictures of white faces. Here's one example of a black face. And she showed them very, very quickly, so quickly, in fact, that people weren't able to recognize them. But she was priming either white or black in the study. And then the task was a very simple one. She showed people a series of frames like this and in which what was there was a very blurry or degraded image of a common object. And if you look at this, this was the first frame, and then a little while later on, they saw this. By frame 25, it started to become clear what the, um, what the object was. And what she looked at is how quickly could people identify these blurry objects? How quickly did they know it was a gun? And what she found is that if people had been primed or had been exposed very quickly to those black faces, then they were very quick to be able to say, oh, that's a gun, that's a knife, that's a handcuff. If they'd been exposed to white faces first, then they were much slower to make these identifications of the common objects. What does this mean? This suggests that seeing black faces brought images and categories of crime to mind, immediately to mind, and these were in people's mind, and then they were able to very quickly draw out and name these objects. Now, what's important to note about these studies of Everhart and her colleagues is that it wasn't just prejudiced people who show these associations. Almost everyone shows these associations, black, white, Asian. Living in America, all of us pick up these kinds of associations between black and crime. And in fact, she summarizes her uh, study with this slide. And uh, that's, the, that's the link, that if you live in America, it's hard not to have that association in your head because of the prevalent uh, uh, shape of the, of the media. And they come into play when we're making sense of the world because we're so frequently exposed to them. What we see in the media powerfully sculpts our views of the world and in ways that we can't control. Now, it's not just images that are important in representations. Words and discourse are also powerful. During the coverage of Katrina, there were many discussions of whether the appropriate term to describe suffering people was refugee or evacuee or whether those still standing after the hurricane should be called victims or survivors. Now, some people might argue, oh, well, this is just a matter of semantics. But, of course, it isn't. Representation is critical because it shapes our actions, such as our willingness to help, to contribute money, or, or how we're going to think about our country and our role in it. Um, this is a cartoon, cartoon in which two people are, two women are fighting about the um, whether the term should be refugees or evacuees. And of course, no one's asking the person in the middle who is one of those what, her, what she would like to be called. Um, but it uh, makes the point. Um, a refugee to most Americans conjures up images of someone not American, someone foreign, different, not people with whom our destinies are interdependent, as we talked about last time. Most of all, the talk of refugees and the third world, third world language was also common um, during the reporting of Katrina, allows people to imagine that poverty and non-whiteness are non-American things. The last 50 years of scholarship in the humanities and social sciences converge to teach us something enormously important, yet something still vastly underappreciated. The unmediated life is an impossible life. We can add or change our frameworks, but we cannot be without them. So because of this, we have to be extremely vigilant and responsible for what we see and hear. What representations are dominant in the media we consume? Are there other representations? What has been ignored and left out? 
In the media-driven society, if we don't see it or read about it, it doesn't exist. For example, a number of people last time noted um, to us afterwards that there was no talk in our um, discussion so far about American Indians. And in fact, many American Indian communities were devastated. There are many around New Orleans, and there just hasn't been a word in the mainstream media about it. But if it's not there, it doesn't exist. Now, one might imagine that what a major advantage of a diverse society like ours, a large diverse society, would be diverse representations. Many people with different backgrounds, contexts, and points of view, many representations. Yet, this isn't the outcome, at least not yet. Some representations aren't part of our repertoires at all, and some are just plain distributed much more widely than others and gain prominence than others. Increasingly, these days, people get their news, many of you here, from the internet. But when disaster strikes, it seems like people return to the television. Why is that? Because in the, tel at the, in the television, there's somebody who's putting it all together for us, who's making it make sense. Um, Nielsen ratings of coverage during the Katrina show that news shows were among the 15 top most watched, top rated, most watched programs. And these figures tell us that mainstream news will give Katrina its most prominent and probably most lasting and official representation. Now, why does this matter? From work in our lab, we know that frameworks that people use to see and make sense of the world vary significantly with their cultural context. East Asians, for example, see the social world and explain it quite differently than do Americans. Within American context, people living in working class communities have different experiences and different life circumstances than people in middle class communities, and they differ in how they see the world and in how they answer how and why questions. Major newslets out, major news outlets represent the world from frameworks that are common in middle class and white contexts because, simply, most journalists and reporters are still white and middle class. That means there is a predominant focus on the actions of individuals and on how they are feeling. Much less attention is allocated to the conditions that lead up to the events or to the situational contingencies that scaffold them. In the approach and aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, the recurring question asked by most reporters, especially in the first week, was why do so many people, why did so many people, approximately one in five, stay where they were instead of evacuating? Not leaving just didn't make sense and quickly led to the conclusion by many observers that something was wrong with those who didn't leave. A Time Magazine random sample survey carried out in the week following the hurricane found that 57% of respondents believed that the people hit by the hurricane bore a great deal or some large responsibility for what, what went wrong with the relief effort after the hurricane. Most media and individual accounts reflected a middle class view of the world. This view assumes that the sensible response to the impending hurricane was to evacuate and by implication, those who stayed made poor choices, didn't take control of their circumstances, and bore responsibility for their plight. This focus on problem individuals and victim blaming was very prevalent in mainstream media in the first week of the coverage. There was almost no efforts to try to think about why evacuation strategies might be stratified by income, or to represent Katrina from the point of view of those who could not evacuate. For the most part, Katrina was constructed as Hollywood see it, would see it, as a spectacle, that divides people into villains and heroes and as an event that reveals people's true nature as they battle against each other. Now, because of exposure to Hollywood, it's not surprising that such frameworks are very accessible in our meaning-making toolbox. The more complex frameworks focusing on structural and historical factors that give rise to neglect are typically, I don't think they have to be, but typically they're the more abstract and pallid ones and therefore they're less emotional, less entertaining. We're exposed to them less, we pay attention to them less, 
when we are exposed to them and then we don't learn to invoke them in our own explanations. Interestingly, by the end of the second week of coverage, some other representations did begin to appear. Bill Clinton, well known for his engagement with black and working class worlds, noted, you can't have an emergency plan that works if it only affects middle class people up. A lot of poor people in New Orleans didn't have cars. A lot of them who had cars had kinfolk they had to take care of. He also pointed out that some people lived from paycheck to paycheck and didn't have money to leave, and also that a lot of people didn't want to leave their belongings or, and there was no way for them to take them along. To him, it was obvious. The people in the Astrodome were not just people who failed to plan or people who made suboptimal sub choices in the face of crisis. Instead, many were people who had no choices or they had an array of ch bad choices. This is a different way to see the world, to understand the actions of those who didn't evacuate. In the last month, some reporters who stayed on site have indeed begun to provide more nuanced accounts of how a hurricane and a flood came together to reveal an infrastructure weakened by decades of neglect and corruption. But whether the images of misery that represented Katrina will serve in the long run to highlight class and racial equality remains to be seen. That so many people asked with real surprise how the events of Katrina could happen in America reveals that the 37 million Americans who live in poverty are in fact mostly unseen and regarded as non-American because the America we typically represent is white and middle class. My guess is that unless deliberate efforts are made to represent Katrina from multiple perspectives and to see it from different vantage points, the images that were stockpiled in American popular imagination during this time will serve only to reinforce prevalent negative stereotypes. Without intentional meaning making and efforts to change our representational habits, in the popular and official re retelling of Katrina, the razor will drift from the hand of the white man to the hand of the black man, and many will see what they believe. Now on the optimistic side, and I'd like to end on the optimistic side, research suggests that it is possible to become aware of the very mediated nature of our experience. We can become more intentional, more self-conscious about the habits of representation and require, insist on more comprehensive and diverse representation from our media. Such representation should train a wide angle lens on the dramatic events of the devastation of the Gulf Coast and focus not on the struggles just of individuals, but include within the frame the historical factors and the current structural political conditions that are the basis for extreme poverty and social disorganization. In the Hollywood world, such representations, of course, go against the typical explanatory frameworks. And to be at all influential, they'll have to tell a particularly compelling and emotional story. And this requires some real creativity. Such work is not easy because as perceivers and meaning makers, we appreciate best those representations that fit with our favorite frameworks. They seem true and right. But an effective diverse society should be one whose citizens demand more diverse and multifaceted representations from its media. And to paraphrase Professor Fraga's comments on government last week, unless as consumers we take more responsibility, we will get the media we deserve. So at that point, I'll leave you with that question, will we get that media? And now I'd like to turn to our next panel member, very distinguished scholar, Professor Shanto Iyengar. And he is the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication. 
He's also professor of political science, director of the political communication lab, and director of the co-terminal master's program in media studies. He is the nation's leading authority on the role of television in the political process. His books include Going Negative, How Political Advertisements Shrink and Polarize the Electorate, Do the Media Govern, Do the Media Govern, and Is Anyone Responsible? How Television Frames Political Issues. Thank you, Hazel. Uh, it's a great uh, privilege to be here. And I should point out that uh, uh, Hazel has pretty much uh, covered most of what I had to say. Uh, so <laughs> I am going to, I'm simply going to elaborate on some of her, some of the arguments and findings that she has cited. And I can't resist uh, tossing in a study that we did ourselves on the whole question of uh, racial imagery and the extent to which it becomes associated with with other kinds of concepts in, in the audience's uh, thinking. So if you live in Los Angeles, and I lived in Los Angeles for, for 12 years before I came to Stanford, you notice that uh, local news uh, seems to be on all the time. Uh, Los Angeles was the first uh, media market in which you could watch uh, local news from 2 o'clock in the afternoon through 11 o'clock uh, through 11 p.m. on a daily basis. And of course, uh, and if you live in Los Angeles, you also know that there is a sort of a staple component uh, of uh, local news programming, uh, which goes by the maxim, uh, if it bleeds, it leads. And so we, we ran a, a study uh, using uh, residents of Los Angeles in which we brought them in and showed them a 15-minute uh, videotape of, uh, they were told this was a representative uh, local newscast, and embedded in this local newscast was a, a, a minute and a half uh, typical uh, boilerplate story on, on a drive-by shooting. And uh, there were three conditions in this study, uh, and in one condition, uh, the suspect that the police were looking for was African-American. Uh, in the other condition, uh, the suspect was white. And in a third condition, the most interesting condition, uh, which I want to tell you about now, uh, the suspect was unknown. So after they had seen this 15-minute videotape, in the middle of which was this 90-second story, we asked them a bunch of questions about uh, reconstructing the, the story about crime, and one of the questions asked them to uh, think back and identify, uh, uh, could they recall whether there was a suspect, and if so, uh, what was the suspect's uh, race or ethnicity? And so the people who got no information about the suspect, uh, who could not have therefore known anything about that suspect's race, in that condition, uh, approximately 30% of them invented a suspect. Uh, they claimed to have seen a suspect, and uh, almost uh, in excess of 90%, I don't remember the exact percentage, of the people who falsely remembered a suspect uh, claimed that the suspect was non-white. He was either African-American or Hispanic. So it suggests that there is this kind of built-in script and all it takes is reference to violent crime, and the viewer then uh, fills in the rest. Okay, so that's uh, analogous to what I'm going to say today about the, the, the potential effects of Katrina coverage, but I want to begin with this adage that everyone who studies uh, mass communication uh, is familiar with, uh, the so-called, uh, the parable of the so-called, uh, the, the, the tree uh, falling in the forest, which is to say that all of us 
Uh, well, none of us is aware of this tree falling in the forest uh, because obviously it is not a newsworthy event. Uh, so the point is a very elementary point that if events do not receive news media coverage, uh, they are pretty much invisible to the rest of us. Uh, most of us do not have the capacity to personally experience events. And of course, if you lived in New Orleans, if you happen to have friends and family living in New Orleans, uh, word of mouth may have been sufficient, but for the rest of us, we're pretty much uh, uh, dependent upon uh, uh, news reports. And so Windows on the World is what I call uh, this opening slide. A powerful example of the transformative uh, impact of news media coverage comes from uh, the Ethiopian famine of 1987. Uh, this rather devastating event had been going on in Ethiopia for months, and people in the United States were pretty much oblivious uh, to events as they were occurring. Uh, the NBC correspondent in, uh, based in London happened to, just one evening, happened to be watching uh, the BBC News, and he noticed a particularly vivid uh, television report uh, which featured uh, close-ups of uh, emaciated and clearly uh, dying uh, children. So he called up uh, his uh, executive producer in New York and arranged to have that story inserted into the evening, uh, NBC Evening News that day. Uh, the following day, uh, the Ethiopian famine was a major event in this country. Uh, uh, rock concerts were organized uh, in numerous places. Uh, millions of dollars were raised, and it essentially was, you know, a sort of a miraculous uh, transformation. Uh, an issue that was previously unrecognized uh, went up to the top of the agenda uh, almost literally uh, in a matter of 24 hours. So as uh, Steve Friedman uh, one of the NBC executives involved in this case commented, uh, this famine has been going on for a long time and nobody cared, and now it's on TV and everybody cares. Let's see, Hillary, I'm trying to find the down arrow. So, if the, uh, the media, if, if uh, the media provide our window on the world, uh, an important question that all uh, media consumers ought to be asking concerns the connection between uh, what we might call mediality, uh, media representation of the real world, and the actual course of the real world. Now, people who study uh, the connection between uh, news content and the course of events have concluded that the news is systematically biased in, in any number of ways, and I'm simply going to go uh, very briefly over some of the uh, highlights of this research. Uh, first of all, there is clearly a negativity bias, and in general, uh, events that, that are suggestive of, of uh, negative outcomes, outcomes that reflect uh, sort of antisocial behavior perhaps, are more likely to be newsworthy than events that uh, uh, reflect uh, prosocial behavior. So the example of youth crime uh, rather than uh, youth academic achievement. Uh, we see far more uh, stories about uh, uh, juvenile crime uh, than uh, do we uh, stories about uh, youth who are, who are uh, sort of accomplishing uh, great things in the classroom. A second uh, uh, problem with the news concerns uh, where does the information come from, and of course uh, there is this pervasive reliance on, on highly placed authoritative sources. In the case of uh, uh, the war in Iraq, uh, the, uh, uh, the mainstream news media were completely uh, uh, sort of uh, 
manipulated by uh, the spin uh, placed by the Bush administration, and so the case of the Iraqi WMD is a, is a, is a clear example. In, in terms of Hurricane Katrina, we will see uh, the mayor's office in New Orleans was an important uh, news source, and by playing up uh, the, uh, the disorder and the lawlessness in the immediate aftermath of the hurricane, and all of this coming from the mayor's office, that certainly seemed to make uh, uh, that element of the story more credible. I'll get to that in a couple of minutes. And finally, uh, as, as Hazel pointed out, uh, uh, there are these sort of Hollywood influences uh, on the media. There is a marketplace out there, and you can't expect uh, news media organizations uh, to, to be uh, suicidal. Uh, they can't afford to run in-depth, uh, substantive uh, stories featuring uh, talking heads, experts, uh, debating the pros and cons of various policies simply because uh, they know that the audience will disappear in a matter of seconds. And so uh, if there's a, a generalization here, uh, it is that uh, news that does not entertain is news that you will never see. And so in that sense, uh, the, 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 what we've seen uh, by way of Katrina uh, reflects these various uh, uh, biases in the production of news. So the, the, it seems to me the, the most interesting aspect of uh, media framing of Katrina is the, the sort of the transformation of this massive uh, catastrophic natural disaster uh, very rapidly into a story about social disorder and social chaos. So here's an example from, uh, a, a, this is an Alabama newspaper. Uh, the media picture of this post-Katrina city was clear. A place run wild with roving thugs, uh, looting, raping, and shooting, turf battles among drug dealers, and snipers trying to pick off rescuers. From uh, the McNeil Lehrer, uh, the, what is now the Lehrer News Hour, a similar kind of take on the aftermath of the hurricane. All kinds of reports of looting, fires, and violence, uh, thugs shooting at rescue crews. Reporters talked to people, they said, were eyewitnesses to atrocities inside the Superdome and convention center. Uh, here's a person on the scene. You got these young teenage boys running around up here raping these girls. Uh, the mayor, uh, they have people standing out there. They've been in that freaking Superdome for five days watching hooligans killing people, raping people. Now, of course, we've all come to expect uh, a distinct uh, slant on the news from Fox. So here's an example of a Fox report. Wearing a bulletproof vest and hurtling over the New Orleans high ground, Taliban style, in the bed of a mud-caked pickup truck, Fox News' Steve Harrigan appears genuinely stunned that a city without an infrastructure, no pumps, no electricity, no centralized communication, is allowing fires to burn out of control and lawlessness to reign supreme. It's a madhouse, he fairly squeals, like the Wild West or some really bad mosh pit. So, as you might expect with uh, media frenzies, there's, there, there's, there tends to be a sort of a cycle. Uh, there's a mad rush to get the story, and then a few days later, people take stock, and there's a lot of uh, analysis and commentary on the performance of the media. So here we have two uh, fairly representative uh, post-mortems. In one, uh, the Los Angeles Times, in, in, a, in an article titled, uh, Katrina Takes a Toll on Truth and News Accuracy, declares that a frenzied media recycled and amplified many of the unverified reports and hyperbolic reporting spread through much of the media. 
The Times Picayune uh, uh, says pretty much uh, the same thing. Uh, inflated body counts, unverified rapes, unconfirmed sniper attacks as among examples of the scores of myths about the Dome and Convention Center treated as fact by evacuees, the media, and even some of New Orleans' uh, top officials. And making the point now clearly about stereotype confirmation and, and the role uh, of race in the kind of coverage that ensued, uh, Times Picayune editor Jim Amos, if the Dome and Convention Center had harbored large numbers of middle-class white people, Amos said it would not have been a fertile ground for this kind of rumor-mongering. People have to ask, why was the media so eager and willing to circulate these stories? Is it because we are dealing with the urban underclass, uh, largely black, largely a community with which the elite media does not regularly deal, and as a result, they were willing to believe stories about this community that they might not have given any credence in a different situation? So what do we know then about the effects of media framing of, of events on, on public opinion? This notion of episodic reporting is important. Now, let me take a couple of minutes of explaining what is an episodic report. Basically, anything that you see in broadcast news is episodic by definition, uh, meaning that there is a focus on a specific instance or a particular example of some underlying event or issue. So in the case of violent crime, we never see news reports about the FBI crime statistics. We never see reports about the underlying contextual events, contextual developments that might influence crime rates. Rather, we see the latest episode of crime, uh, a focus on a particular event, a particular case study, if you will. And what episodic reporting does, by its very nature, it focuses, it, it makes the viewer focus on an individual. Uh, so in the case of Katrina, uh, one of the evacuees, uh, one of the, one of the uh, persons who's lost everything, who's, who's, uh, who's in the middle of the, of the maelstrom. So it focuses attention on individual victims and makes race especially salient, since in the case of television, we're dealing with a visual medium and it's, the, the viewer is much more likely to notice the skin color of the individual than, let us say, his, uh, his level of education or his, or his income. Uh, these factors tend to be in the deep uh, background. And so what this does then, uh, when people are asked to understand or when they try and make sense of these events, they tend to focus on individual responsibility. Uh, so if they've been confronted with stories about individuals, they reason about the events in terms of individual responsibility. So as Hazel was pointing out uh, in the time poll, uh, people are willing to blame the victim. Uh, they're willing to ask questions about why didn't this person leave rather than stay behind instead of asking uh, structural questions about you know, why, why didn't we invest enough money in a, in a sound set of levees? Uh, why is it that, that Holland is able to manage flood control but the United States is not? So these kinds of underlying contextual factors tend to be ignored. A secondary effect of episodic framing is to protect incumbents, uh, to protect the authorities from any sort of wide, uh, widespread uh, fanning of, of public discontent. Uh, so to the degree that we see widespread suffering and, and an inadequate uh, governmental response, it sort of cushions the blame. Uh, so people can, uh, can, the federal government can deflect responsibility by by suggesting that individuals could have done more to help themselves. 
Uh, so I think in, in another slide, I'll, I'll ask you the question right now. Uh, what might have happened to President Bush's approval numbers? Uh, they did drop uh, somewhat in the aftermath of Katrina and the totally inadequate uh, FEMA response, but one wonders what might have happened to his approval numbers if the, uh, the population in question, if the people affected, if, if Katrina had happened, let us say, in Beverly Hills. Now here is an example of a potential, uh, talking about the effects of framing. This is a, a very interesting uh, news report that appeared in the New York Times uh, concerning efforts to relocate uh, the victims. So this is a community in, uh, in Louisiana. The federal government straining to find temporary housing for thousands of evacuees from New Orleans has generally encountered hospitality in cities and towns in the Gulf area, but the reception has been very different in the small parish of St. Helena. Here, 80 miles northwest of New Orleans, white residents have spoken up at public meetings to oppose vehemently the construction of temporary housing for the evacuees, most of whom are black. The tension could complicate tentative plans by, the FEMA, by FEMA to buy land in the parish for trailer lots. And here's the, the classic example of how episodic framing might take its toll on, on, on public opinion. The only thing we see about these people in the news is what happened in the Superdome, said Philip Deval, a white resident of Greensburg, at a recent meeting of the parish government. They're rapists and thugs and murderers, I'm telling you. Half of them have criminal records. I've worked all my life to have what I have. I can't lose it, and I can't stand guard 24 hours a day. So the general implications then, uh, what, do, what do we know about the impact of episodic framing? I've suggested that it encourages people uh, to blame the victim, and it makes race especially salient, and so people reason about national issues through the prism of racial stereotypes. Here is a closing quote from... Uh, book I wrote many years ago about uh, framing and uh, the implications for American politics. Following exposure to episodic framing, Americans describe chronic problems such as poverty and crime not in terms of deep-seated social or economic conditions, but as mere idiosyncratic outcomes. Confronted with a parade of news stories describing particular instances or illustrations of national issues, Viewers focus on individual characteristics rather than historical, political, or structural forces. In this respect, episodic framing encourages reasoning by resemblance. People settle, about causes, people settle upon causes and treatments that fit the problem. Thank you. Thank you, Chantal. Next speaker is Brian Lowry, who is a professor of organizational behavior in the Stanford School of Business. Brian's research interests are on how non-conscious cognitive processing affects behavior and decision-making and also on social stereotyping and prejudice. He's the author of numerous papers showing that negative stereotypes about various racial groups bombard us every day in the mass media and that they deposit into that, that residue deep into our minds and without realizing it, um, very much in the vein we've been talking about here, um, this has powerful effects even on the most well-intentioned and non-racist among us, and he's done a very um, many clever studies to um, illustrate uh, these, uh, these principles. 
His study shows, however, on the optimistic side, his research that um, through relationships with people who hold egalitarian more egalitarian ideals, we can in fact change these associations that um, are happening outside of our awareness. And tonight, Brian's going to tell us about this and some new work as well. Brian. Okay, thanks for that introduction. Unfortunately, tonight I won't be talking about the more optimistic sides of my research. Um, <laughs> no, I will hopefully end on an optimistic note. So the events of Katrina are rare, the events like Katrina are rare occurrences in this country. It created a media event that exposed continuing problems of race and class in dramatic fashion. On Professor Bobo's words, shattered the myth that we've largely solved the race problem in America and no longer need social action and social policy aimed at, aimed at achieving racial justice. Today what I want to talk about, or tonight what I want to talk about, is how these events were perceived through the eyes of white Americans. So it's a shift from what the media presents to how we understand it in line with Hazel Marcus's, Professor Marcus's comments that we don't see reality as it is, we see it filtered through our own, psycho our own individual psychology. And so in particular what I want to suggest is that, is that whites' sense of themselves as such, as racial actors, profoundly affects the way they see and understand the images associated with Katrina. For days, Americans were barraged with images of U.S. citizens stranded without food or water, the young and elderly without medical care, and people left dead in the streets of a major U.S. city. The vast majority of these victims, it was hard to escape the reality, the vast majority of these victims were black and poor. In the past, such racialized media events have proved pivotal in the fight for social justice. One might argue that during the 1960s, the belief in equality, while arguably more often professed than practiced, helped mobilize the American public shocked by images of peaceful marchers attacked with fire hoses and dogs. To understand the response to Katrina, we must understand how the images presented in the media are filtered through individual psychology. I suggest that just as the American ethos of fair treatment profoundly affected whites' response to segregation enforced by violence, so will it affect their response to the images of Katrina. However, in the case of segregation, individuals could identify the violators of the ideal of fair treatment and agree to outlaw such behavior. In contrast, the majority of Americans find it difficult to identify a malicious, a malicious agent that is responsible for the crisis exposed by the images of Katrina victims. For example, a CNN USA Today Gallup poll asked, among other Katrina-related items, do you think George W. Bush does or does not care about black people? <laughs> in the context of questions, in the context of Katrina, this question can be interpreted as, did George W. Bush pur purposefully ignore the victims of Katrina because they were black? While approximately 20% of blacks said Bush does in fact care about blacks, the majority of whites, almost 70% replied that Bush cares about black people, suggesting that whites did not blame him for the plight of black victims of Katrina. I also find it interesting here that whites' rate of no opinion is no larger than blacks, so this does not suggest that, they, yes, as a default, they're truly suggesting that they really believe that Bush cares about black people. Black people. And I'd argue that in cases like Katrina, where it's difficult to identify malicious agents, that ex the acceptance of race as a factor implies the existence of institutional racism that implicates whites as a group more than what individual acts of discrimination. Which leads me to the first claim I'd like to make, that institutional racism indicts whites more than individual acts of discrimination. That is, the possibility that institutional racism exists is a stronger accusation against white Americans than the acceptance that certain individuals continue to practice racist, engage in racist practices. Okay. And in support of this claim, 
um, I and my collaborators conducted a, a study which suggested that whites who are asked to give examples of institutional racism perceive 20% more unfair white privilege than whites asked to give examples of individual racism. So again, whites, when asked to think about institutional racism, perceive themselves to benefit unfairly from the color of their skin more so than whites asked to think about individual acts of discrimination. This also suggests, if, this also suggests that individuals draw a distinction between white privilege and discrimination against blacks. That these two things are not equivalent in individuals' minds. Okay. Which leads me to my second claim, which is that privilege associated with institutional racism threatens a white sense of self in a way that individual acts of discrimination do not. Now, I argue that the desire or need to believe that one embodies the ideal of fair treatment, an American ethos, causes whites to deny the existence of racial inequity that in any way implicates their participation or complicity in an unfair system. Right? To do so would suggest that they violate the strongly held belief in a fair and just society. Thus, in the absence of overt discrimination that can be attributed to someone else, whites are likely to downplay the existence of racial inequities altogether. So in a way to test this hypothesis, we, add, we motivated whites to protect their sense of self. That is, we threatened their sense of self and to see how this would affect their willingness to report the existence of white privilege. And what we find is that whites threatened, when their sense of self is threatened by negative feedback, they, do not, they deny white privilege to a greater extent than when their, their self is not so threatened, suggesting that the denial of privilege is in some way self-enhancing for whites. Interestingly, we do not see the same effect on black discrimination. So there is no more reluctance to report black discrimination, suggesting this doesn't threaten their sense of self in the same way. Okay. Moreover, among whites that believe strongly that people should be rewarded based on their performance, that is, who believe strongly in the American ethos of fair treatment, among these, group, among these whites, a high belief in privilege that their group is privileged produces an unwillingness to identify themselves as white. In other words, when we acknowledge, whites that are willing to acknowledge that whites are in fact privileged are unwilling to acknowledge that they themselves are connected to that group, that they may in some way benefit from their membership in this group. In contrast, people who don't hold the ethos to the same extent show no relationship between the belief that whites as a group are privileged and their willingness to identify with that group. So whites deny the, deny the existence of privilege, but not necessarily discrimination to protect their positive self-image. Moreover, even when they acknowledge that privilege exists, they distance themselves from whites as a group as a way to continue to protect their own sense of self. So in some, whites deny their privileged place in the social hierarchy to protect their positive self-image from the threat they have not earned what they have and thus represent a violation of the American ideal of fair treatment. And how does this play out in Katrina, in the context of Katrina? In the case of Katrina, an unwillingness to acknowledge the existence of institutional racism would mean denying that race played a role in the misery evident in the images of the disaster. In the absence, I argue, of someone to blame for purposefully neglecting victims of Katrina due to their race, to acknowledge that race played a role would be acknowledge the existence of institutional racism. Okay, thus, it is not surprising that little more than 10% of whites thought race affected the speed of the federal response. In contrast, Almost 60% of African-Americans believe that race was a factor in the way the federal government responded to the um, events of Katrina. Again, in the absence of overt discrimination that can be attributed to someone else, whites are likely to downplay the existence of racial inequity altogether. Okay, which leads me to my final claim, why should this matter? 
argue this matters is important because perceived privilege produces greater support for policy designed to increase social equity than does perceptions of discrimination. So when we look at the effects of, when we try to predict support for redistributive social policy using both privilege and discrimination, we see that privilege is a much more powerful predictor of support for such policies than are the perceptions that other groups are discriminated against. Why might this be the case? I suggest that individuals are motivated to reduce discrimination. That is, people are, they do in fact hold this ideal of fairness, and they do want to reduce and eliminate discrimination, but they do not perceive this as self-relevant. Thus. They don't support this, to the, they will only support this to the extent that it doesn't harm their own outcomes, right? Why should I give up what I have to remedy the, down, the, remedy the discrimination that someone else faces? In contrast, when they accept that they benefit from an unfair system, they are more willing to sacrifice their advantage in service of equity. This logic suggests that whites' perception of their group's outcomes is the limiting factor when determining policy support. Again, the whites, what determines white support more strongly is their perception of their own outcomes rather than the outcomes of the disadvantaged group. To examine this possibility, we explored how support for redistributive social policy was affected by the perceived impact of the policy on whites and minorities' outcomes. And what you see, what we find is, when the policy is not perceived to harm whites, when there's no effect on whites, the more the policy benefits minorities, the more whites support the policy. Again, the existence of discrimination is something that whites do not agree with and when possible will work to eliminate that. In contrast, when the policy is perceived to harm whites, additional benefit to minorities has no effect on the willingness to support the policy. Thus, even though they accept that the policy would benefit minorities, a disadvantaged group, they're no more likely to support that policy to the degree that it harms their group. I argue that perceptions of privilege should moderate this effect. Thus, in, in other words, privilege gains its power, gains its predictive power because it, it it eliminates the, the reluctance to support policies that perceive to harm the, harm the in-group. Okay. Consistent with this argument, when thinking about discrimination against blacks, white support of policy perceived to harm whites less than the policy perceived to help blacks. Okay. Not surprisingly, the more the policy hurts whites, the less they support it compared to a policy that helps blacks. When thinking about black discrimination, however, when we force these same individuals to think about white privilege, Support for a policy that harms whites is as strong as support for a policy that helps blacks. To examine how this may play out in the context of Katrina, we asked a sample of whites if the government should provide more aid for Katrina than was initially allocated. Okay. But before this question, individuals were asked one of two questions. They were asked either, to what extent do you think the response to Katrina was slow because the majority of victims were black? Or they were asked, to what extent do you think the response would have been faster had the majority, had the majority of victims been white? Okay. After answering that question, they, they decided how much they think the government, should the government provide more aid for Katrina than currently allocated. Okay. When focused on black discrimination, the possibility of black discrimination, a sizable portion, 76% of the white participants, think that the government should provide more aid for Katrina than currently allocated. Okay. And in contrast, when thinking about the possibility that their group is privileged, that whites as a group are privileged, support for providing more aid for Katrina, 84, almost 84% of the participants wanted to, add, wanted to provide more aid to victims of Katrina. Okay. So in conclusion, I'd like to say it's, when we think about the images associated with, with Katrina, we have to keep in mind these images are filtered through the individual, psych the individual psychology of perceivers. Thus, when pictures such as this are presented, we have to ask ourselves, what do people see? 
what do people see? What's the narrative people create? Do people see um, a group of people that happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? Do people see evidence of discrimination against the black and the poor? Or do people see evidence of systematic or systemic inequity that affects everyone in society, including themselves? And what I want to suggest to you tonight that what they see profoundly affects how they want to respond to this event. And that how we talk about these events, how we frame these events, if we include everyone in the problems that spawn this crisis, we're likely to get a more sustained response. Thank you. To our last speaker, I want to remind you that you have cards for questions, and there, there's one person over here who's picking up the cards. If you if you have them, that should help us move more quickly to the question session at the end of the last speaker. And the last speaker tonight is Marcelina Morgan, who's professor in the Department of Communication. She is the director of Stanford's Hip Hop Archive. And she also founded the Hip Hop Archive at the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute at Harvard University while she was a faculty member there, but we got her away from that place. Her research focuses on youth, gender, language, culture, and identity, sociolinguistics, discourse, and interaction. She's the author of many books. One, Language, Discourse, and Power in African American Culture and the editor of Language and the Social Construction of Identity in Creole Situations. Her most recent book to be published in the next couple of months is entitled The Real Hip Hop, Battling for Knowledge, Power, and Respect in the Underground. And I think she is probably the world's authority on these topics. And I just wanted to show you a book that I just took off her desk when I was over there this afternoon, in which it's entitled Hip-Hop and Philosophy, Rhyme and Reason, or Rhyme to Reason, better title, Hip-Hop and Philosophy, Rhyme to Reason, um, and she, this is an edited collection in which she um, has a piece, and so let's show that one because it was there. And uh, we're ready to go. Now what we're going to do is, um, can you, uh, we need that, yeah. You know, we, this isn't amplified. She amplified. He's going to come down. Yeah, he's coming down to do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you did tell me. Yeah, because there's sound on yeah. there. I don't know. It'll, I don't think it'll be Someone enough. knows how to help.
Listen, homie, it's holiday in New Orleans. It's for the water, hey, when people dead in the streets. And Mr. President, he bought that cash. He got a policy for handling the kids and trash. And if you poor, you black. I laugh, I laugh, they won't give you. You better or funk. Jetta in jello with a gun and I ride. And it's as simple as that, no opinion, my man, it's mathematical fact. Listen, a million poor since 2004, and they got aliens and killings to waste on a war. And make you question what the taxes are for.
That's from uh, the, you can go to pressissue.org to see that website. It's also now, um, that video, it's also now all uh, in many places. Um, um, okay, I'm just, it's okay to start there, okay. Um, it's in many, uh, on many other sites. Um, um, if you just Google Katrina Clapp, you get maybe 20 different sites. Um, one of the things that I wanted, I wanted to bring that to you because I think many of us don't have a sense of the alternate kinds of uh, media that have developed, but also the response to what has been talked about tonight, especially among youth who are involved in hip hop and those who listen to them and follow uh, those particular youth and artists. The person who uh, did the video is most deaf. And most deaf is both an actor and uh, hip hop artist, and did that with this a particular clap that's associated with New Orleans. It's called the Nolia out, out of Magnolia, New Orleans clap, and uh, that clap is his way of speaking to the people of New Orleans that this song is for them and about them and for people in the Delta. Um, that doesn't mean that 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 particular clap is about necessarily revolution. It's about hip hop in and of itself. And those who know hip hop know that that clap represents many things, not just this one thing. And was used by an artist from Louisiana named Juvenile who's known for basically party kinds of music. But it's that clap that was known throughout that region that became I think an important part of this song and is the reason why even though the song doesn't get 
AirPlay, uh, it's widely known and played and downloaded. One of the things that I, uh, re the reason why I focused on this particular slide is to just go back to it one more time because this is the slide that really, these are the, the, the pictures that really changed a number of youth and working class youth in particular attitude about whether they should do something, whether or not they had responsibility, whether or not the government had responsibility uh, in, in terms of community, nation, and in relation to race. What I think is important to know is that we here could through the internet and because of access see this particular image because this is an image that was really transmitted over uh, through websites and the internet. This wasn't an image that was widely distributed in the national media. However, once word got out, and the word got out through what was called grassroots efforts through a lot of the community organizations, once people saw the two pictures placed together, the outrage spread and that it spread among people who normally are not active or involved, who basically watch the world go down, I think is of significance. So what actually happened as a result of this was that we had many more working class people of color, especially African Americans, actually involved and interested in things on the internet. And um, much of the reporting that I've received turns, you know, is pretty anecdotal, but the list and the, the, the reportings are absolutely amazing in many ways, in that it isn't simply that people wanted photographs, they also wanted copies so they could show it to older people of the community and various other people and to show someone in prison and things like that. Just the interconnectedness and the sense that information was not only getting to people who we normally wouldn't think are really actively involved in the sort of, uh, in, and concerned about governing and concerned about what's going on, but that they absolutely wanted to know and wanted to do something. And I think that that's the important uh, point that I'd like to make with that. It is as a result of this that we end up with a statement from um, someone named Kanye West. And I want to talk about that because that was very much a part of a media event and began to be a bigger media, uh, media event. Um, and it's important to think about what he did and what he said in the context of the previous presentations. Because within the hip hop community, especially the community that considers itself conscious, the ideas and theories that were talked about and the results of various studies are things that people very much believe are true about what goes on in the country. At the same time, this is also a period, if you think about it, where humor and politics tend to be the way that we understand news. So we have Jon Stewart, Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, Bill Maher, and they deliver scathing political critique with humor yet an intelligence and analytical framework. So we have this expectation that this package is a package where we accept things as news, as critical, 
as in, in some respects fact, and even if we know or suspect it's not fact, we accept it as critique. And so what we find in hip hop is that the response to the media is in the form of humor and critique and a somewhat scathing analysis. So I'm now going to go to... The city has changed dramatically, tragically, and perhaps irreversibly. There's now over 25 feet of water where there was one city streets and thriving neighborhoods. I hate the way they portray it in the media. We see a black family, it says they're looting. We see a white family, it says they're looking for food. And you know, it's been five days because most of the people are black. And even for me to complain about, I would be a hypocrite because I've tried to turn away from the teacher to TV because it's too hard to watch. I've even been shopping before even giving a donation. So now I'm calling my business manager right now to see what, what is the biggest amount I can give. And, and just to imagine if I was, if I was down there, and those are, those are my people down there. So anybody out there that wants to do anything that we can help with, with the setup, the way America is set up to help the, uh, uh, the poor, the, the black people, the, uh, the less well off as slow as possible. I mean, this is, Red Cross is doing everything they can. We, we already realize a lot of the people that could help are at war right now, fighting another way, and they, they, they've given them permission to go down and shoot us. And photos have been many ways more profoundly devastating the lasting damage to the survivors' will to rebuild and remain in the area. The destruction of the spirit of the people of southern Louisiana and Mississippi may end up being the most tragic loss of all. George Bush doesn't care about black people. <laughs> in the past few days... Now... You see why I mentioned humor as part of it, because I think it's an important part of it. I want to say a little bit about Kanye West before I go on to the next slide, because looking out into the audience, I suspect that some of you may not actually have an appreciation for all that is Mr. West. Um, first of all, let me, let, let me say that I am a fan. I really like him and, and, and all that, that without, without question. Um, Kanye West is from a middle-class family. His mother was a chair of the English department at Chicago State. Uh, Kanye West uh, was a student at NYU when he decided that um, uh, he, he called himself a college dropout, but he decided to pursue his um, music career. He was in an automobile accident, and if any of you listen to college dropout, you know he was driving a Lexus, and it rhymes with many things. And he was in a very terrible automobile accident where he almost died, right? And then he had his mouth wired and everything, and it was a, a very, very terrible experience. And I will spare you the rhymes about this and the endless stories about this. He's known as someone who is brash, uh, has an incredible ego, uh, will say what he believes, is outspoken, thinks he's the most talented person. So to see him that sort of vulnerable is a very, very interesting thing to see. And most people were quite shocked. Now, I want to talk about the, the, the various responses to, to Kanye West, in, especially in terms of how hip-hop also responded. And, but I, if later we can, we can you know, discuss some of the other issues that developed as a result of him making the statement. There was concern among some people that he made that statement 
because he, his uh, next album was coming out. But, and one of the people who were concern, was concerned about that is Master P, who is here and a resident of New Orleans um, who, and LA and whose family lost everything. Every member of his family lost everything. Um, the person next to him is Juvenile, who's also from New Orleans, who lost everything. Uh, and then next to them are uh, um, Jay-Z and Puffy, Diddy. Uh, <laughs> and the organization that they formed together, SOS, Saving Ourselves. And they're holding the million-dollar check that they together wrote. Uh, for the victims in Katrina. At the bottom, on the left, is most deaf. And I really wanted to, you to be able to get a better shot of, of uh, uh, Mike Myers as Kanye West is talking. Uh, <laughs> Kanye said he told him he was going to you know, break from the script and that he was just going to talk. And so he knew that was going to happen. I think that he was quite taken uh, aback, but... Uh, uh, and then on the right is, um, oh God, David Banner from Mississippi. David Banner has done incredible organizing in the South around Katrina and in New York. And um, we like to say, who knew that he had this in him? But is considered to be one of the most progressive voices coming out of this. Now, what happened? We, we had this media response. They're looters, they're thieves, they're rapists, they're this. They're, what happened, essentially, was that a number of people in the hip-hop community, a number of people who consider, are considered to be very successful in the hip-hop community, were outraged at the representation. And their outrage resulted in them basically saying, it's now time for us to change things. I think it's very early to talk about what exactly those changes are. There are certainly a number of organizations that have developed as a result of it. But what I really want to look at and, and show you and share with you are some of the things that have happened and the, the approach people are using to talk about this. Because this is not your traditional let's uh, join a, a political party kind of response. This isn't um, your, your, your let's have a revolutionary takeover uh, sort of response. It's a much more response of uh, associated with it's pretty clear that they are not capable of doing this job and that someone else has to. How that works uh, is uh, um, the particular question, but in terms of looking at the media, what I also want to talk about is this issue that hip-hop youth are obsessed with is like their interpretations of what happened. So as many times as we can show the, that picture, it will never be too many times. As many times as someone says George Bush doesn't like black people, it will never be too many times in the hip hop community. No one gets tired of that. Um, and that is somewhat new in terms of the, 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 the willingness to accept the repetition. What really happened? Part of it is the reason that I think that's true may be because a number of things the distinguished panelists have talked about in terms of the way media representations deal with race, deal with crime, associate 
African Americans, people of color, with crime, with negatives, with fear, essentially. And so what we get is this constant reworking and looking at and, and questioning of what really happened. So within this hip hop community, there is an incredible amount of critique that regularly occurs. There is no story that's considered to be necessarily true. But there are stories that are considered to be representative. So just in that most deaf video, you saw some information that we know probably isn't completely true. But what is important to him, and as he said in interviews, is that it represents what people think. Okay, it's represent how people, what, what people feel about what happened, and that's why that kind of information is there. What I want to focus on and what really happened is the part um, where it starts on CNN's late edition program. Um, and this is after the Kanye West um, statement. Host Wolf Blitzer quoted West when asking Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson whether racism was a factor in the slow federal response in Louisiana. Thompson, a Democrat, said the government had failed at, uh, failed and, quote, someone has to be held accountable, end quote. Chicago sometimes pop music uh, critic Jim Derrigada said in the paper's Monday edition that the most revealing part of the Blitzer-Thompson exchange, quote, was the fact that Thompson mistook the comments from West as a statement from Princeton University professor, theologian, author, and activist, Dr. Cornell West. <laughs> in one fell swoop, the rapper and college dropout has earned a place in the front ranks of this country's best known and most respected African-American activists, and I would also say uh, philosophers and scholars. So the big question is, which West, okay? <laughs> now, of course, this, this is hip hop's way of saying these people are just so bad. You know, they're so, even when they're trying to do good, they're, they're racist. They can't tell people apart. So we, we have the college dropout. You know, they both, you know, are African-American men. The difference in age, you know. Um, and, um, you know, which West? And, of course, there are many, many more questions about how to understand the political significance of this. And some of you may have received the email, this t-shirt was my idea to put this on there, Kanye was right, but so this email that was sent to me uh, says in the midst of all the controversy in regards to Kanye West's comment about towards George Bush, he got another problem on his hands. Mr. West was in another car accident late yesterday afternoon just outside of Chicago. I don't know if you heard about this. Witnesses say it was a hit and run incident involving, involving a white pickup truck. Mr. West was struck while crossing a street adjacent to his mother's home. Luckily, a bystander at the scene managed to snap a picture of the white truck. P P police have released the picture below. <laughs> and Putin is in the van with him. So what, what I, what I want to say is that Yes, it's bad, okay? But I think it's very healthy that people are not just doing things and organizing 
that scathing wit and humor is working. And those of you who don't uh, know hip-hop, How You Like Me Now is a line from a famous uh, hip-hop kind of uh, battle kind of uh, rhymes back and forth. Um, so what, what, it, what are the sort of things that are going on? One, the, the, at IndieVoter.org, which is also known as the League of Pissed Off Voters, and you can see um, the Statue of Liberty is quite pissed off. Um, they have set up the New Orleans Network, which is a very successful network that people use to get in contact with uh, various people. The, uh, the League uh, uh, of uh, Pissed Off Voters has a, a national network of community organizers, who, and a lot of them were, are in the South, and so they've actually one of the leading organizations to pull people together. Notice also that even though this is really about uniting people, if you go to that more than words section, you see racism in Katrina, evacuee or refugee, the digital divide. So all those things are happening simultaneously, just in the most deaf video where they are also talking about the environment. They're talking about class. They're talking about the war. Um, and then there's a website called KanyeWasRight.org. And um, it may no longer actually be, I tried it today, and maybe I typed something wrong, but uh, you may have to do certain caps. But at that website, it's Bush doesn't care, but we do. We will never let this happen again, never. And the name of the organization in the group is ColorOfChange.org. And let's all become the color of change. Oh, I thought we could have gotten a little bigger. And one of the things that they have on this site, uh, besides uh, as one of the campaigns, is the statement that Bill Bennett made, black people, a race of criminals. Bill, and, and part of the things one can do is insist that Bill Bennett apologize or get off the air. And it includes basically what he said. I, uh, the, the type is... Republican leader Bill Bennett said on his radio show that mass abortion of black fetuses would reduce crime, implying that blacks are a criminal race. He says that that was taken out of context, and he was using it as an example of something. And, <laughs> but the point is that, what an example, okay, especially in this particular context. So, and, and it's important to note that the people involved in this include Julian Bond, and uh, Michael Eric Dyson in this particular effort. Um, there are many, many organizations, many groups who are now taken to the web. Uh, David D, of course, has been there a long time and has an incredible site looking at the Katrina, uh, hip hop's response to Katrina, various efforts. Allhiphop.com has information, Reclaim the Media has um, information, as well as the other organizations that I highlighted here. The point is that there is a response, and there's a response among youth, and there's, there is this sense, um, and I think there's a sense in this room, especially from a number of the students, that, okay, this, is, this sort of thing is not going to continue to happen, that what has been going on is not enough. The attempts that have been made are, are not enough, that it is not the case that change is occurring, that life is getting better for everyone the way that we're doing it now.
Um, and so Katrina itself, for much, I think, of the hip-hop generation, certainly those who follow a number of these artists, and many of them, especially in the Bay Area, uh, which is the um, hub of organizing around hip-hop in the country, it's not, Katrina was not simply a wake-up call. It brought people, it, it brought people out of a state of complacency. They had to resort. They, they had to resuscit be resuscitated, yes, to get back to my title. But now that they've survived their near-death experience, they no longer are interested in the complacent and often meaningless life. And I think for the hip-hop generation, with their long, long memory and their insistence on representing that they will never forget what happened. Thank you. I'd like to start with some questions. We thought we would start with student questions, give priority to students, because it is a class after all. So let me see here. First question for the evening is for Brian Lowry. Your data show that the acknowledgement of white privilege has benefits in the recognition of bias, yet this acknowledgement is threatening for whites. How do you recommend that we get around this issue? In other words, how do we get white people to acknowledge white privilege and systematic, systematic inequities? Um, that's an interesting question. I think <clears throat> that you have to overcome the concern that whites will be upset by recognition of privilege. And whenever you have the opportunity to highlight that discrimination can be framed either as privilege or discrimination. And, um, I really don't, I don't have a, 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 some prescription for how to do that in the mass media, but what I can say is you can think about how you, how you talk about racial inequity day to day or when equity, inequity of any type and make an effort to think of it in terms of the advantage group and make an effort to highlight to people that that's also a valid way to describe the problems in society. I don't know. Anybody else want to join in? Okay. Um, a question for Professor Iyengar. I am wondering why Professor Iyengar has a problem with a New York Times story which includes quotes um, at a, of a local resident making disparaging comments about Katrina refugees. After all, it was a legitimate quote from a local resident and the author stressed that the person making the quote lived in a region that was primarily hostile towards refugees. It is not important for the media is it not important for the media to call attention to racist attitudes when they actually do exist? Is this not just responsible reporting? Oh yes, I didn't, uh, I didn't mean to convey that I had a problem with that article. In fact, uh, I cited it as evidence of the kinds of effects of episodic framing and the kinds of effects of the associating uh, race and ethnicity with chaos and disorder. So 
Uh, I have no problem with the article whatsoever. I thought it was a fine article. Okay, anybody? I'll, I'll say something else about that, actually. Sure. Um, I, I do have some of it an issue with media that just presents um, the facts without acknowledging that a frame is going to be put around it. So when you think about the stories, you, show, you see pictures of or stories about the number of people buying guns after Katrina. And then you have to ask yourself, what are they, what are they conveying to us? When they write that story, do they describe this? Are they really, is the media really talking about how this is a racist type of practice, how the stereotypes about African Americans are driving this behavior? Are they simply reporting it as if it's just reporting facts without acknowledging that a frame is going to be put around it and understanding what that frame is likely to be? So, I mean, I don't, again, I don't, I don't know what the prescriptions are, but I think it's irresponsible to assume that what you're be reporting is objective truth without acknowledging that certain frames are going to be put around those, those facts. Uh, one question um, or a comment here to me, I want to make sure I do this, that um, it says uh, I, the comic strip I showed you was from um, Boondogs, and apparently it wasn't cited on there. And so those of you who saw the comic strip, uh, they showed here the evacuees or refugees, what word to use. That is from um, Aaron Magruder's comic strip, Boondocks. And so that's, it's always, you know, important to cite all that. And with our pulling of all of our stuff here very quickly together tonight, some of that may not have happened, but very important whoever made that comment. Lots of questions now about what we can, well, first, first a question here before we get to what we can do about things. Um, a question about, has the same kind of news bias been proven to affect news courage, coverage in other countries, negativity, bias, infotainment, or are these a particularly American phenomenon? I think, Shanto, that must be for you. Uh, well, I mean, the American media system is fairly distinct in the sense that uh, it's exclusively uh, uh, driven by private entities. Uh, we do have PBS and NPR but in terms of the, uh, the audience share, it's fairly minute. Uh, the Nielsen ratings uh, for, for Jim Lehrer's uh, news program uh, is typically uh, less than two uh, rating points, which means I like to tell my students that the only people watching the Lehrer News Hour are people who hope to be interviewed on that program. <laughs> in the rest of the world, in the rest of the world, uh, the public brought, the BBC, for example, in Britain captures 45% of the national audience. And all across uh, Europe, if you average the share of the, the subsidized uh, uh, national uh, broadcast, it's about 30%. So the problem is that when you have a private uh, system of uh, private entities, uh, the uh, civic responsibility is going to be, it's by definition uh, going to be shook. They will shook. They will not produce uh, an adequate supply of substantive news uh, because it's uh, basically it's a market failure. And so unless we do something about at the policy level, which, which, would, would, which would mean lots of things, but uh, it would include uh, rolling back uh, the kinds of uh, deregulatory moves uh, put in place by the Reagan administration, uh, putting some teeth back into the FCC, uh, better funding uh, for public television, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not uh, optimistic that any of this is going to occur. Okay. Now, uh, good question about the um, coverage of Katrina from um, ethnic media versus mainstream press. Does anyone have, Marcy, do you, anybody have know about actual, I mean, we saw hip-hop responses. Is there any other um, systematic look at 
other than non-mainstream media yet. I know lots of people are intending to do this, but. Yeah, um, I know that, that uh, all I know is that there is a lot of criticism about the coverage, but I'm not sure exactly what the basis of the criticism is. Um, it's, it seems that people were, people felt that radio paid attention but that the print media did not pay any attention in the way that they thought that they should have covered it, uh, except in areas that were directly affected, until at least a week after the particular incident. I don't know the, the degree to which it was true, because many of the publications come out weekly. They don't come out daily. So I'm not sure exactly uh, how to understand that particular uh, criticism. I think the hip-hop media, except for uh, it, it immediately after, except for David D, did a terrible job. Um, it was the artists who stepped forward and uh, were able to claim space and get media attention. But the hip hop media uh, claimed that they were sent to, to various assignments and weren't given those particular assignments. And um, I hope that you know they eventually talk about what actually happened. Now we have a whole set of questions here that are basically, um, can we talk about what we, what we can do? So uh, all of us made references to that. I'll just read you a few of these questions and then we can make, open up the dis uh, discussion on this issue. If the media is controlled and we don't see the truth, how do we demand the truth and get the media changed? How can we get the news media to change? It's routine practices, especially those practices that reinforce negative racial stereotypes. Um, it is extremely difficult to take the mainstream media back. Uh, I have often written email messages to newscasters of the mainstream media about their misinformation, disinformation, or factual distortion of the truth. I have never received a reply. I have sometimes written letters to the editor, and only once did one get printed. It would take millions of us constantly to monitor the, monitor the mainstream media. Wouldn't it be better to encourage people to focus on alternative media, radio like KPFA, and pirate radio, alternative newspapers, and, and, and uh, India media websites, etc.? If people stop buying mainstream newspapers, stop watching mainstream news, might it have an effect on the mainstream news? And then there's a, a number of questions about people talking about the other um, other uh, media, w what is blogging, is that helping us, what is happening and what's the, what's the way, so anybody want to jump into that fray? Well, I think I, I, I would agree with the, uh, with the assertion that if everyone stopped watching, uh, that would be a good thing. But I'm somewhat pessimistic about whether that would will happen. Uh, I mean, uh, everything we know about um, audience uh, culture suggests that, that people will, will tend to take the easy way out. Uh, so essentially, you know, it's sort of a classic uh, collective action problem here, that, that, that getting people systematically all across the country to observe you know, a, a moment of not watching their television, uh, or you know, five minutes of uh, you know, silence, uh, it's just very difficult to, to, to implement and put together. So I guess I'm somewhat cynical about uh, whether something can be done about it. I think that that people should do two things. One, I think you should. I think you should complain. I think we should complain. I think if you believe in something, you complain. I um, don't. I think people who disagree with a lot of my beliefs seem to complain a lot, and they don't <laughs> seem to ever get tired. 
Um, and so, you know, it seems like people who are sort of on my side are the ones who are tired. So I'm just saying take your vitamins, get some energy, and keep it going. Um, and, but I also think organized efforts are good. But I, and I think that other things uh, are important. So I really very much enjoy what's happening now with a, a lot of people who are forming these groups to do something and their sense that they're going to do something. I think that we have a tendency to downplay that kind of activity because one, it looks different uh, from what previously happened, and two, um, many of us don't believe that that's how things get started. Um, we're afraid it's not going to happen, and that in fact is how things do happen. I know that if we organized, um, you know, not to this, I, this uh, point that uh, Shanto just mentioned, um, you know, a day, and the first year it's done, there'll be just a few people, and then the second year there'll be more, and then the third year they would be concerned. But do you have three years in you, you know? So we're not talking about something that's easy, but we are talking about something that other people have successfully done. Um, and um, certainly we, we could do, it's just, are we going to do something? And um, I think that that's what the hip-hop generation is saying. Uh, why aren't we going to do something? Because it's hard? Um, I, think, I think you should complain. <laughs> I think you should arm yourself, though, so your complaints have teeth. That is, search out alternative um, sources of media so that you're not just working with what you're already given from the media that you want to complain to. Um, I think that organizing, and you see a lot of this in, in some of the things that Marcelina, um, Professor Morgan talked about, that sometimes finding an interesting article and emailing that to your, your friends is a way to, to start something. Like a good example, I think, is the looters versus people scavenging for, for food. That wasn't something that was put in the mass media. That came to mass media attention through the chain of people sending it around. I think that's an example that... If, we, if something is powerful enough, if we find information that evokes a strong response, that we can disseminate it actually, I, don't, I wouldn't easily as maybe too strong a word, but it's possible to disseminate those types of images and those types of um, ideas through grassroots kind of activities. Something as simple as emailing it to friends and asking them to email it around. I'd like to encourage anybody who would like to join into this discussion. There's mics on either side of the room, so please feel free to... Um, go to a mic and ask a question to any of the panelists on these or any topics. I have other questions here, but um, we can certainly have more discussion. Um, I, um, anybody else have anything they want to say about how, what we can do? We seem raise your hand from your seat if you don't want to go to a mic. We've agreed, we've agreed on the problem here tonight. This, this is a question, like question, yes. Way back there. Way in the back. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I have a young daughter who's 
Well, I, I am aware of them, but I, I, I'm aware of them because Davy D's aware of them, okay? And so he actually uh, wrote about that. And there are various sites, especially the underground sites, who have been writing about a number of people who've gone down and are working either, you know, in other organizations. Also, out of the South, there are a number of, of um, organizers, including indie voter, uh, that uh, the League of Pissed Off Voters, who are, are, are putting the word out about a number of people who are uh, doing work both with, with major, you know, well-known organizations and working with various groups. So it isn't, um, from my perspective, it isn't a surprise or something that's unknown. I think what concerns me is that that kind of work isn't seen as part of a growing movement or a growing interest, and I don't know why that isn't the case. I, but it doesn't, you know, no one seems to be connecting that. Um, and, and if you raise your hand if you can't see too well. Um, a couple of questions now that actually um, pick up on what we can do to um, pay attention, to uh, focus attention more on, on um, institutions and, and structural issues. Um, one says, Iyengar spoke. Um, about the representation of Katrina in terms of episodic reporting. Where does the abundant coverage of the failures of FEMA, state government, and local governments fit into this framework? It seems that there was, in the instance of Katrina, some pressure to place blame on institutional breakdowns. And I think that actually was the case, although they quickly became about the individuals who were leading the organizations, right. I mean, not having uh, the right stuff. That's right. I mean, the uh, the, the departure of uh, Brown as head of FEMA. Uh, I, don't, I think we are, we are still waiting to see exactly what was the organizational uh, process that led to that disaster, the inadequate response. I don't think there's been any coverage of the actual structural ingredients of that failure. All we've had is the kind of uh, talking about the uh, sort of uh, comments made by Brown that the subsequent uh, replacement and so on and so forth. So I would say it's uh, revealing of it's just more episodic framing. And then a series of questions um, about the, the hip-hop response. Um, is this infotainment as well as Shanto talked about it or does it really um, uh, represent the events in a different way that will focus us on institutional failures, structural inequalities. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's both, and I don't think I'm just being overly optimistic. I, um, I think that the humor associated with it is an indication that people are no longer um, laughing at what society is doing. They're basically focusing on the irony and the critique and what's necessary to do, but there's not this notion that it's really funny. Um, I think it's much more about the anger associated with it than, than it being just funny. On the other hand, um, I prefer that people who are young also enjoy what they're doing and, and get the wit 
and and get the irony. And so I don't see that that level of humor as being infotainment. I think that what they're talking about is going down to New Orleans, is organizing that. And there's so much of that going on now from the very people who are are um, um, also, you know, making us chuckle at at, at the absurdity of, of a lot of this, and um, at the expectation that there's a lot to do. So I don't think I, I think there's a danger if we only see being serious as um, never seeing um, the humor uh, as an African American and someone who studies African-American culture, um, there's no doubt that African-Americans could not be here today if there weren't also humor. Um, and um, it didn't mean, mean that there wasn't suffering, but there was always humor. And I think that this is a very modern version of it, and it's one of the first times that everybody gets to see it, and to see it, it, basically how scathing it can be. It can be incredibly mean and, and funny, but very serious at the same time. And I think that that is what's going on, and it's the public face of that at this point. And a related question, Marcy, how can we um, legitimize or bring the hip-hop movement to the forefront? Should it be widely publicized? Why or why not? Well, I think, I think the hip-hop movement is, you know, I, I think youth do what they you know, when, if they want to bring it forward, but it's not something that um, I think the older generation, and by that I mean people in their 30s, uh, uh, can bring to the forefront, okay? Yes, some of you who, you know, who are hip-hop, yeah. But I think that what happens is that the acknowledgement and the working with youth brings it to the forefront. The, 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 the fact of the matter is, I think, uh, you know, the things that Brian talked about, this notion of institutionalized racism and this notion that people are surprised that, that they may benefit from things and surprised that this happened and surprised. I think a lot of youth are like, you know, you love your parents, you love your grandparents, you love this, you love that, and it's like they're surprised and you just talk to your age group. It's... It's difficult for people. This isn't the 60s, you know. This isn't the generation that is going to turn on the previous generation. Um, this is the generation that, you know, is, is really caring about the previous generation. So how are they going to do this? I think that we have to give them a lot more support in, in what they may be trying to do and that we have to show by example more. But, you know, we have a lot to lose. And so that's the key. It's like, how do you deal with all those things? Speaking out in this particular time, um, you know, scares a lot of people. And, uh, and I think for very good reason. However, not good enough reason from my perspective to let things continue uh, as they are. So I think that there, there is absolutely potential. I, I do always warn people that I am the optimist. I'm the one that, you know, will, will always. But, but I also think that because I work with so many young people who are working very hard at this, that you, you have to believe that that kind of energy pays, out, pays off. Okay, and then there's a group of questions. I'll put them together for one. Thanks, Marcy. Someone at the mic, too. What do you say? There's someone at the mic. Oh, someone's at the mic. Sorry, go ahead, since I invited the mic. Uh, hello. 
Uh, first, thank you for coming. Uh, this was very interesting. Um, I have heard the panel say a lot of uh, negative things about white people in their institutions. And I would simply like to challenge you to say something nice about white people and their institutions. Thank you. Well, maybe that goes with this question, which is, is it possible to address white privilege with respect to Hurricane Katrina without turning off middle to upper class white audience? How do we make okay, Hurricane I think that, Katrina? That means no. An American dilemma. No, I think it's the same question. I wanted to package them together. I think it's. I think it's the same. I think it's um, a, a relevant question. So. I, I think so I, it seems to me that a lot of this is, is me. So yeah. um, I think that the way I think of the work is, in fact, it departs from the way we normally talk about whites, which is either villainizing them or lionizing them. Right. So we either vilify them as um, people who perpetuate or engage in prejudice or discriminatory behavior, or we lionize them as protectors of the American dream, people who actually participated. And I think my work is not, in, I don't think I'm saying anything negative about whites, in fact. I think what I'm saying is that everyone is a participant in the system, that the system, not whites institutions, the institutions, our institutions, are flawed. And I think those flaws are reflected in the outcomes of whites and the outcomes of minorities. And so in my, in my mind, I think what's interesting about, or what I enjoy about the work, in fact, is I'm, I attempt to move beyond blaming. There's no one at fault. It's not this person's fault or that person's fault. It's that what I want to suggest is that we're all in it together, and we all need to acknowledge our role and our place in the society. And in doing so, we can together create a better one. So that's not, as I see it, it's not a claim that there's something wrong with white institutions, because I don't know what those exactly are. It's not a claim that um, whites are, are bad in the sense that the, the processes I talk about psychologically happen for everyone. Everyone wants to feel good about themselves. It's just that we need to understand how these processes play out among whites as well as how they play out among minority group members. And I think that the experience of white Americans has been neglected when we look at the research on race. In fact, we've looked at all we look at is whites as actors but not as objects of study. What's the experience of being a white man or a middle class white person? And I think that deserves exploration. In some sense, I feel like it's a, it's a sign of respect that I and that other people care about this experience. Not in any way, it's not in any way to claim that there's something wrong with white or whites or white institutions. Okay, and I think it's um, getting late, but there's, I, there's a set of other questions which I'll use as a segue to our third um, set, section. Yeah, uh, which is a set of questions about what could have been the proper um, organizational response. Can we rely on organizations or must we, um, uh, the lesson we should take from this is that people must be our own um, ground up support and what should have happened. And I will use that to draw attention to the third session which will be on November 7th and is entitled Organizations as the Solution and as the Problem. It will be here again in Coverly. Uh, and I want to end up, but before that I want to make one last announcement which is um, if um, anyone knows people who has contacts in the affected Katrina areas, if they could come up to us at the end of the, the session here. Um, we need help from those who have any information about the location of survivors for a couple of ongoing um, studies that will hopefully um, inform some of the questions we had here tonight. So please join me in thanking the wonderful panelists tonight for a really illuminating session.
and thanks to the audience who stayed to the end and listened through the questions, and you were great. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.